The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Michael Kist. Are you caught me not listening again? Benjamin Solak. You never listen. It's the Kist and Solak Show. Presented by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. You are flying high on the Kissed and Solak Show. This is episode 106, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I'm your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on BleedingGreenNation.com. Follow me on Twitter at MichaelKistNFL. That's K-I-S-T. As always, joined by the best doggone co-host in the game, Mr. Eight-Year Streak, Mr. Nine-Year Streak, Nine-Year Streak, without a bad day. That was a habit. Sorry about that, Ben. He is Benjamin Solak. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's S-O-L-A-K. Ben, how you doing, brother? Sprolsy's back. Yes, which I'm really pissed because I have a tweet somewhere is about how I thought they were going to resign Sproles, and I clearly did not use <laughs> Sproles or Darren in the tweet. A positive exists. Can't find it. But I wrote about it in other places, so it's good. I This always made sense to me. That, like, they had Jordan Howard, who's not a pass catcher. They had Miles Sanders, who wasn't really a pass catcher. He's a good athlete, but he wasn't really a pass catcher. And then they had a bunch of guys who they'd like to become Darren Sproles, uh, but who are not yet Darren Sproles. And then they had Darren Sproles as a free agent. And so once, especially once Sanders started being unhealthy in camp, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. Like, here's the thing. They're re-signing Sproles for the vet minimum. I mean, I don't know that officially, but there's no way it's not the vet minimum. <laughs> And then he's going to come into camp. And if there's a younger player who could give them what Sproles will give them in 2019, they'll keep the younger player. I mean, they will. It's not like, you know, Sproles is going to go to some other team and burn them. Sproles is either playing for the Eagles in 2019 or he's not playing. Those are the two options. And certainly there's a degree of people have complaints about this, like nostalgia and, and, you know, just like signing a guy for the leadership and for the locker room and trying to get him a Super Bowl ring and get him to play whatever. Okay. Because yeah, he has a ring from 2017, but obviously, you know, he wasn't healthy. That all that being said, Sproles is still a player who like defenses will recognize as a unique threat. He's still a, a quick and elusive back with good contact balance who's effective as a receiver because of his experience, because of that ingrained intuition that you only get from playing for a long time. Like Sproles has not been highly effective for the Eagles the past few seasons. He's been very beat up, and when he's been on the field, it's not like he's been a fantastic runner, but that's never what Sproles was about. Sproles was always about being that potential receiving threat, the potential receiving option, who when he is on the field, it forces defenses into conscious thought, into cognizance over the fact that Sproles is there and how they have to account for that. And if you want to be the Houston Texans and just tag him with a linebacker, then the Eagles will get that one good game out of Sproles. And listen, if they get one good game out of Sproles, 
then like, who cares? You probably weren't getting one good game out of Josh Adams or Boston Scott or Danelle Pomfrey, right? Like you probably weren't. I'm fully there for you too, but I, even I don't think that's given, right? And so yeah. it's, it's, it's so low risk that it's the only reason that people are upset about it is because it's July. So let's say Sproles gets injured and then you call somebody up from the practice squad and the guy on the practice squad is might have been the person that you were going to keep anyway. He isn't pushing right. anybody of value out. Good player, receiving back, makes a ton of sense. He's the third running back. Like, what are we talking about here? And, oh, well, injuries are important because, you know, we were doing running back five. Well, you know what? Oh, hopefully 17 running backs don't get injured this year. I don't know what to tell you. No team has right. five really good running backs. I I, I don't get that argument. I, I think – the monster who made her first uh, guest appearance on the Kiss and Soul Act show is about to make her second. It sounds like she's rousing. Oh, you got a sick doggy. She's not. She's not sick. She's. She's just. Uh, she. She gets super rowdy around this time of day recently, which is really annoying. We have to take a road trip today, so I was trying to like tire her out. But anyway, this yeah. doesn't matter. What matters is <laughs> if we had gotten to week four and Sanders had still been gimpy. And Josh Adams and Wendell Smallwood had been predictably ineffective, and they signed Sproles. It would have been like, all right, Sproles cool, great. Back. You know what I mean? But instead, they just did it earlier, and yeah. people were like, this is dumb. <laughs> like, I don't really think Sproles is going to, like, take away significant growth reps from Boston Scott. Like, no, they're starting to let Boston Scott do a bunch of stuff in training camp. And if Scott can give them Sproles-esque ability, they'll keep Scott. They will yep. 100% will. I promise, guys. I really promise. Like, I'm, I'm very certain. But... Securing Sproles for training camp, getting him in, seeing how healthy he is. I don't think they're making any commitment to him beyond the vet minimum. It's really just like very okay. It's yeah. so okay, guys. It's it's a very basic and okay move that I feel we have covered here because it's so basic and simple. And look, we're going to be talking a lot about the Eagles coming up here. Training camp is here. Now, we're not going to be talking about training camp today. We're going to be getting updates from BLG. If you're around for when they had, you know, the mandatory mini camps and the rookie mini camps right. and like all that stuff, all that stuff that was open to the media, you know that me and BLG will record after the practices, go over what happened and whatnot. But we don't have any of that yet as we record here early on Tuesday morning. So what we're going to be doing is an eye on the enemy series. We're going to be doing the Los Angeles Rams. So keep an eye out for all those training camp updates. We'll have at the podiums with the press conferences. We'll have all that stuff coming your way. It's actually going to be a really jam-packed week. I'm supposed to talk with Brian Westbrook this week. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. I just This is what no, I do. It's okay. Just fully stunt on me. It's cool. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I'm trying to get Joe Giglio or Justin Giglio, as you may know him from The Art of the Take, to come on here this week to talk some Carson Wentz. So we're going to have a range of guests. We're going to have a ton of coverage, a lot of stuff coming your way. But we do need to get through this Eye on the Enemy series. And part of doing that is looking around not only in the NFC East, which we've already done. And I posted that link at BGN underscore radio concerning the three teams that we've done in the division for the Eagles. Now we're looking outside of the division, still inside of the NFC East, looking for the main contenders for the Eagles. One of those being, of course, the Super Bowl losers, the Los Angeles Rams. So why don't, why don't we start with the coaches here and then maybe we can talk some some general roster construction and whatnot. Ah, with Les the Snow. golden boy. Yeah, the golden boy with Sean McVay. I don't think that there is any question that he is a great offensive mind. And that said, I do think there are more question marks out there than the national media really wants to recognize. We've talked a ton about the Rams stretch on offense, starting with the week 13 Lions game after the bye. 
being like the line of demarcation for them in terms of when defense has really displayed a solid understanding of how to slow down their passing game. Other teams like the Seahawks were doing like tightening their fronts earlier in the season to slow down their wide zone schemes, which is really their base package. Teams were starting to get that way, but like week 13 is that line. From that line, the Rams went from third and touchdown drive efficiency before their bye to 16th for the rest of the season through the playoffs. Some of that has to do with Cooper Cup, absolutely. Some of it has to do with Todd Gurley's knee. I get that. Gurley being hurt took away their wide zone schemes, took away their screen game based off of that. But you're talking about the healthiest team in the NFL over the last three years and the fourth healthiest team last year. That stuff is going to happen. If you're an Eagles fan listening to this, and you probably are, you know better than anybody else after last year that injuries are going to happen. And like I mentioned, it wasn't just about the injuries. Defenses stopped respecting the jet sweep and letting it influence them and pull them out of zones. They played more quarters with depth to handle the 10 and 12 yard break points in the passing game with the reduced splits that the Rams love so much. And admittedly, I love them too. We saw a myriad of other things from the Patriots and Seahawks playing tighter fronts inside to the Lions manning up bunch straight up with no switches. We saw Jim Schwartz get out of his comfort zone for once and blitz Goff six out of six times on third and five or less. This is stuff we talked about throughout the season on here and football minds much smarter than me have documented them at length. Defense has cracked the code. McVay is a great offensive mind. Like I said, what separates a great offensive mind from a great coach is the ability to adapt. The loss of two skill players should not turn your offense into a pumpkin. That's the challenge for me when it comes to McVay headed into 2019. And there's plenty of reason to to say that he'll figure it out and they'll have plenty of success because not every defensive coordinator is a playoff caliber coach and not every team can match their talent. But I don't think it's crazy for me to suggest that some of those struggles and regressions linger going into next season. I'm happy you ended it the way that you did because I was going to push back on you and I was going to say, it's okay, it's it's verified that he's a great offensive mind. Yeah, well, you lost... I'm running back on a wide receiver and your offense could put it. So are you? You know what I yep, mean? Right. In terms of like, you know, the difference between the great offensive mind and a great coach. I mean, we're just like parsing vernacular here. Yeah. What's interesting to me is, is, and this is like critical. McVay, offensive coordinator for what? Three years with the Redskins? Titans coach, yeah. 2014, he was promoted to offensive coordinator and then three years and then 2017, he's hired for the head coach of the, the Rams. So five years calling an offense. Losing a, 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 a key slot receiver on a team that is heavily middle of the field oriented and does not use its running backs for checkdowns super often that's gonna hurt like like the loss of cooper cup is gonna hurt and as notable cooper cup fans from the draft michael kiss benjamin solak we are not sad to hear that he went to los angeles and became critical yeah, um we love that big fans right, great great. Brand. but you know if you want to if you want to take it from the eagles argument perspective doug peterson was out there running a good offense and then he lost carson Wentz, and then the offense stayed good you know what I mean? Like, like the, and there were, and there were significant documented, you know, in part by us and part by other people, changes that were made when Nick Foles was put in the starting position because Carson Wentz went down in 2017, uh, you know, after they beat the Rams, in case you're wondering. Keep in mind, we're talking about moving on from a Cooper Cup injury, a slot receiver, to a quarterback. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's right, a big yeah. difference. <laughs> it, it's a big difference. And 
one of the things that was really lauded in that transition is the uh, the the collective mind, is the approach of, okay, we're going to pull a lot of things from a lot of different spots with Filippo, with Reich, even with, like, you know, Press Taylor and his job of just, like, watching college tape and coming up with stupid ideas. You know what I mean? Like, this was all heralded, in large part, because the Eagles won the Super Bowl. If they hadn't won the Super Bowl, this wouldn't have been heralded the way that it was, but you get increased access to why a team was successful when they win the Super Bowl, and this was what was heralded for Philadelphia. Yeah. McVay... You know, West Coast born and bred, Grudenite runs a, a, a beautiful West Coast system that is distilled, right? It is sharpened. It is, McVay's a great offensive mind. He doesn't do complex things. He does simple things. The, the Rams run exclusively two personnel sets, 11 and 21, or 11 and 12, excuse me. That's it. Yeah. They had no snaps in 10. They had no snaps in 22. You don't need snaps in 10 and 22 to be successful, that's not the argument. The Rams office was very successful without them. Um, but this is this is simplified. There's not a high variety of play concepts, of play calls in McVay's offense. There's a lower number. If I can chime in on that real quick, they're like you said, they're not trying to lie to you. They pass out of shotgun 96% of the time. The league average is 77. Yeah, they have what, like 14 runs out of shotgun? Is that what it was? Right. So they're in shotgun. They're telling yeah. you, hey, it's coming out from Goff's hands. <laughs> there's there's right. no deception. They run play. Right. They run play action more than any other team yep. in the league. The most of any team this decade besides the 2012 Washington Redskins for the football outsider almanac, which is when they had RG3 and it was just like everything was read option, right? Yep. You know, and then they run the ball like second or third most in the league. You know what I mean? Like this is not, they're doing some very simple things very, very well. Right. This is not a criticism. This is an exaltation. Like that is how it should be. Make your offense easy to understand make it easy to enact make it easy to to be successful easy to produce but there should be at least a interchangeability in the sense that the loss of cooper cup shouldn't destroy jared goff and if you go i have a post up about jared goff right now on bleeding green nation but if you go and you look at and he talks slower so that he can find the sheet. <laughs> if you look at Jared Goff's splits active and inactive with cooper cup huge completion percentage drops six percent Yards per yards attempt, per attempt dropped about 33%. Air yards per attempt dropped about 33%. Mm-hmm. We saw the interception rate increase, and we saw the touchdown rate decrease. We saw the sack yeah. rate stay basically the same. Garrett, Garrett, Goff got significantly worse, you know, and using Goff's performance as a measure of the, the Rams passing offense when Cup went down. You have two options, either interchangeability, you need somebody else who can play Cup's role because, you know, like Robert Woods stays here, Brandon Cook stays at X, Cup stays at the slot, and they don't move him. Well, you need somebody else who can do his job, or you need to change the offense when you lose him. <laughs> and neither one of those things happened, Yep. which like is very permissible. And it circles back to what I said at the beginning. Five years of play caller. It's okay to not be great at this. It's really hard dealing with injury. If it was easy, injury wouldn't matter as much, but it matters a lot. It ends it ends seasons for teams. You know, Cam Newton went down. The Panthers were six and two. He goes down there one and seven. Like in like Cam Newton went down, the whole team stopped. Dealing okay. with injury is hard. Yeah. But it's something that, that's going to be expected from great coaches, which I would argue if we look at some of the great coaches that we have now, Bill Belichick's offense is literally predicated on the idea of interchangeability, right? Like no one matters in that offense. Everybody, it's, it's super, you know, just socialism, just spread the wealth. <laughs> Doug Peterson, I'm going to put him up there, has shown now multiple times that he can lose significant offensive pieces, namely his quarterback, and still have put a successful offense out on the field. Yep. And then I would argue that you have Sean Payton, and Andy Reid, who are also up there, who have been successfully designing offenses for 20 plus years. Like, if we're going to put McVay in the upper echelon, yeah. which I would love to, then I want 
him to be able to have his offense respond to losses and injury and, and be able to change relative to what's going on. And that was the big criticism around the Super Bowl, right? Is that McVay came out pitching the same stuff when the Patriots had two weeks to prepare for it. Yep. And I didn't go well, Mike. I don't know if you missed it. They scored three points. <laughs> and Jared Goff has been dreadful in the postseason. Dreadful. Yep. He had a completion percentage of 55%. One touchdown, two interceptions. Average uh, yards per attempt below seven, which is dr- really, really bad relative to his regular season numbers. When he plays good defenses and they have time to prepare, I mean, it just does not go well. And that goes down to if you're going to win based off of simplicity, you need to still be able to respond. Like, I, I don't know. It's like, I love the simplistic nature of it. And it's valuable and it's good. And it's what allows them to be really successful with a guy that we don't love and Jared Goff, a quarterback. But it can't just be that. Yeah, you have. There has to be a, a changeup, right? There has to be a two. You only have the one punch right now. Speaking of Goff, and I'm glad that you have the exact same concerns with McVeigh for this, pretty much the same reasons that I have, independent of each other. We came up with those conclusions, which is which is nice to see. I'm. It's always nice to be confirmed by Ben because he's much smarter at me when it comes to these things. But that, you, I mean, no. <laughs> you mentioned Goff, so let's talk about Goff. So I was rewatching him recently, and I think you know my issue with him. The, the term like one-read quarterback, I feel, is typically bad. And I don't think Goff is a one-read quarterback. And I, and I want to make that clear because sometimes that gets confused when you say that a quarterback struggles when things aren't clear right away. I think he's perfectly capable and comfortable moving to his second read in the progression. That's not where things fall apart as they do for a quarterback like Derek Carr or a quarterback like Case Keenum. It's even a big flaw for Daniel Jones in college. When those quarterbacks have to come off the first read, things really become muddied for them. That's not the case for Goff, which is a compliment. It really is. But I make that distinction because I want to make it clear that when things break down for Goff, it doesn't matter where he is in the progression. If he is moved off the spot, even slightly, or he feels pressure, especially to his ball hand side, where he sees it and has to process it, that's where things get a little hazy and a little jumbled for him. He doesn't really navigate the pocket well. He's a bit skittish. I think it impacts his accuracy, and the under-pressure analytics weren't great for him last year. His QB rating is actually bracketed by two guys I already mentioned, Carr and Keenum, and his adjusted completion percentage under pressure is bracketed by Josh Rosen, a rookie, and Eli Manning, a bad quarterback. Please never quote quarterback rating on this podcast ever again. Like, you sicken me. Don't worry. I'm actually good. I'm, I'm going to deal with that. Don't worry. But but both <laughs> metrics, solidly in the bottom half of the league. I wish I had like NAYA stats for under pressure. But look, there's two components to this, and there's a couple no does to address. The first one being, Goff is much better with a clean pocket. Well, no duh, right? There isn't a quarterback in the world that isn't. We can all survive in a mansion with plenty of food, right? That's not hard. But Goff has shown a particularly high level of play that is attainable when he's kept clean, more so than other quarterbacks. Conversely, quarterbacks struggle under pressure. Again, no duh, they all do. Everybody would struggle to survive if you dropped them off in the Amazon, miles away from civilization. Some are just better equipped to deal with it. Goff is not. And we could have a whole conversation about if quarterback performances are sticky under pressure or not sticky. I don't care. This is where it is for me. The film matches the analytics. I specifically watch games where I thought he showed his peaks and his valleys. And I thought the stretch of play from week 9 to 11, culminating in that shootout with the Chiefs, which is super fun, was a great example of his ceiling. Do you watch uh, Do you watch week 4 against Minnesota? I didn't go that far back, no. Was he One great of the that wildest. <laughs> Listen, he had an, an adjusted net yards per attempt of like 17.1 or something like that. <laughs> Literally, he was... And like his yards per attempt was like 11, right? Yeah. Like 
he was like 26 for 33 for like 455 yards and four touchdowns or something. Minnesota was like, hey, you like throwing in the middle of the field? What if we ran cover two? And golf was like, okay. It was unbelievable in terms of how Mike Zimmer, who is like apparently some defensive mastermind, just like sits in too yeah. high. It's like, I don't know how they keep on hitting this dagger concept. Like, sweetie. <laughs> Because you don't have a middle of the field safety. Yeah, um, exactly. But no, like that, like that. To me, that game because you you bring up this this like week thirteen or whatever it is point. Golf. They start three out of the four games at home. Uh, they have that incredible game against the Vikings where Golf just absolutely rips people to shreds. Was that? But by the way, was that around the same time that Josh Allen torched the Vikings? Was that like right around that same time? I think it was. I'm I sorry, think he ahead. did. I think he did it in week three. Yeah. I okay. Think week okay. three. Buffalo, or maybe week five, but yeah, it was around that time. But then the next five games, uh, four on the road, the Rams yeah. played Seattle, Denver, San Francisco, Green Bay, and New Orleans, yep. right? And San Francisco, Green Bay, these did not end with great defenses. But the Seattle game, the Denver game, and even that Green Bay game where, I mean, golf with three touchdowns, we took five sacks, and he had a completion percentage under 55%. These are teams that were willing to put one safety in the middle of the field and send pressure. And I thought Goff struggled even during that stretch. Yeah. And then obviously that like you you like that New Orleans game was good. I agree that New Orleans game was solid. But that four out of five, they lost that New Orleans game. Those four those five games, four of them on the road, like the Rams were play they played Seattle tight, they played Denver tight, they played Green Bay tight, and they lost to New Orleans. So that's four games that aren't been a possession. They go three to one on them and Goff did not have fantastic performances. So to me, like Goff started the first quarter of the season hot and then even like at the halfway pole, there were cracks in the armor. We're like, I mean, Green Bay, I guess like Green Bay got five sacks on him. Denver got five sacks on him. They just, they, they rushed guys at him and they said, hey, make plays. And then the real low point from there, you go from pretty doggone yes. good to about average to bad. You know, weeks 13 through 15 being the low point. And I have a hard time believing that it was just a product of better defenses like in the Bears game. He had poor performances against the Lions and the Eagles who were playing just weirdly guys out of position in the defensive backfield. After that, he finally got out of his funk playing a couple tomato cans before the playoffs. But between those two stretches, Goff was pressured at a 10% higher rate in that valley that I mentioned from weeks 13 to 15. And QB rating, like you mentioned, is not a perfect stat. But a quarterback rating of 18 in those three games when pressured is low enough to worry about if the metric is perfect or not. And look, you might say we're really dialing in on this like one bad stretch, but not really. Because when that rating under pressure only jumps to 27.8 in the playoffs, ranking 12th out of 12, it's hard for me to see that stat and watch him wilt with a defender in his vicinity to see again and again those moments where his brain seizes up when he has to move off the spot, like that interception in the Super Bowl where he was way late to throw, it's hard for me to see and witness that. It's hard for me to see the Eagles break him in 2017 by just mounting up the pressures and the hits and say that it's not a problem, that it's just going to go away because of some sort of natural regression to the mean. What I'm saying is Jared Goff is soft, soft. That's a problem. A W S A W soft. F T soft. <laughs> ben, do, would you agree with that? He's just a soft. He's a pocket player. passer. Yeah, he's a pocket, he's a pocket passer. passer. And I have no problem with pocket passes. I really don't. You're talking to a guy who's been a Matt Ryan stand for a, while, a long time. You're talking to a guy who really likes Josh Rosen coming out. Like if you can be effective and deadly from the pocket, I'm there. Now, there's a big caveat with that, right? And it's if you're going to be a pocket passer who doesn't extend plays, you better be able to throw wide receivers open mm. against 
man coverage. You better be able to throw players open effectively against man coverage. Now, here's the thing. He's great. I think he's really, really good. And I said the word great. I'll probably stick by that because I think it's his best strength. He is great at the top of his drop, anticipating windows into zones in the middle of the field, intermediate areas. I think that's his biggest strength. And and this is where I was going to go with that. I think he's a highly effective quarterback against zone coverages who, and this circles back to a point, gets a lot of those because of how many bunch and stack sets that he's getting from McVay. Tight alignments, bunch and stack sets, you know what they're checking to, especially when you use a lot of fly motion, which let me check. check. Oh yeah, McVay uses a lot of that as well. Listen, he's really good. And this is this is the, the you know this is the the brunt of the issue. McVeigh's really good at forcing defenses into checks, and when you force defenses into checks, you get easy reads. It was so wild to me when I saw the Lions play bunch just straight up man, no switching, and that's the reason for that. We don't want you to dictate right. to us. We'll do some crazy stuff to throw you off. And it threw them off. Goff had a bad game against the Lions. No one cared right. because they won by two scores. The running game took over. The Lions were bad. Like, nobody really noticed that week. But, yeah, you switch it up on them, and they have issues. Anything else on Goff before we start to kind of switch the offensive line and the, and the, and the playmakers around yes. him? After- yes, yes, yes. So, Go for effective it. throwing against zone. And the Rams do a really, really good job at forcing zone coverage. Which I think if you ask every NFL quarterback what you want, zone or man, they're going to say zone. Throwing zone with NFL talent, with NFL receivers, NFL arm strength, like that's fine. Can you throw open against man coverage? And with right. Jared Goff, I would say yes for like 11 games of the season. And then for like five games of the season, which were like against good defenses with good pass rushes, no, for four quarters. Like not, yeah. like, not just like, oh, went under pressure. No, like he struggled all game. And and that's where like like you know soft whatever he, skittish, uh, yeah. a, a little little tough to pull himself out of the lows gets mired and and and, and that, that that internal clock shortens and it gets twitchy and, and he feels that and, and and his drops start falling out of sequence. When I mean, you're going to be a good guy throwing against zone and throwing concepts, you need to have you know good sense of timing, good work with your feet, so on and so forth. And that's mm, I don't know. I don't. I I do not want to say, and I'm distinctly trying not to say. He's, he struggles to uh, throw against man coverage because he doesn't. But there are just some games where if you rattle him enough, he doesn't recover. Like, he doesn't get back on track. Yeah. And that matters because mm-hmm. if you cultivate a reputation in the league for being rattleable, every – like, and this this goes back to the prevailing mindset for defensive coordinators. You talked about, like, the, the Lions playing man coverage over the bunches, right? Like, eventually, as a defense coordinator, you just choose what you want to beat you, right? Like, it's not about, like, all right, we're going to stop everything. That's kind of impossible. So, you just choose how you're going to lose. Like, yeah. all right, if they're going to beat us, they're going to do it this way. And, like, the Lions just said, like, listen, like, if you're going to beat us, it's going to be because we're going to play man coverage. You're going to sometimes beat us off of these bunch stacks, and you're going to get leverage. You're going to run pick routes, and it's going to work. And then we're going to have golf, you know, throw, our, throw your guys open against our man coverage defenders. Like, that's how we're going to lose. Beat us that way. That's the way a lot of teams are going to choose to lose to the Rams. I would not want to choose to lose to the Rams by playing cover three and letting Goff just hit them, you know, just hit seams, hit middle of the field stuff, hit deep crossing routes, so on and so forth all game. And I think that you saw Philadelphia when they played them, and we know this, they went to a lot more of their trap coverages and they went to a lot more of their man coverages. And we were all scared about this because Avante Maddox was out there playing corner yeah. and it worked well. You know what I mean? Yep. And so if you, if you develop that re- reputation, which I think Goff already is kind of on his way there, of being rattleable and then not being able to make those, you know, if, to borrow a PFF phrase, big time throws, 
teams are just going to come at you all day because, listen, you're the Rams. Like, if that's the formula for beating you and that's the only way we can do it, I don't care. Like, uh, maybe I'll give up 40. Maybe this would be a game where you get me. But this yeah. is the best strategy. Here we go, you know? <laughs> Did you see the Athletic uh, article on the QB rankings? And they're talking to different executives, coordinators throughout the league. And they came up with this tiered system, this ranking system. They mentioned Jared Goff in it. And Goff ended up in the tier two, and he was ranked as the tied for 12th quarterback among minds around the league that the athletic pulled. And one of the things that you mentioned here is in one of these quotes, uh, this this court, this head coach says against 90 percent of the teams in the league, he's probably a two tier or a one tier, but against tougher teams where he has to rely on his ability to read. He's not quite there yet. Tight man coverage is tough. The blitz game can be tough. But he does a lot of things as well. So I think the same concerns that we have is things that coaches around the league are seeing with Goff as well. And look, if we're going a little bit long on offense, and if you haven't been able to tell from the title of this episode, I'm not sure I qualified it up front. It's because we're only dealing with the Rams offense. It's going to be a special two-parter for the Rams. So when we come back from the break, we're going to continue to talk about offense in part two. We're going to talk about defense, but we need to get to some of these skilled players and offensive linemen for the Rams entering the 2019 season. That's up next on the Kiss and Solak Show here on Bleeding Green Nation. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. And we are back on the Kissed and Solak Show, episode 106, brought to you by the Five Folk at Bleeding Green Nation and SB Nation. Michael Kissed here with Benjamin Solak. We're talking eye on the enemy for the Rams offense, part one of this preview for the Rams headed into 2019. Do we want to talk skill players? Do we want to talk offensive line? How are you feeling right now? What are you feeling? This team lost two starters on their offensive line, and they might lose another two next offseason. Let's talk about it. This offensive line, for the most part, did well to protect God. There's a problem there. You wrote about it in your BGN piece, talking about the turnover there. So I talk mm-hmm. enough on this feed. Go for it. The floor is yours, my friend. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Whitworth on the left, brother. R- uh, Rob Havenstein on the right. We are cooking with Greece. That's great. John Sullivan, career resurgence at center. Uh, left guard, Roger Saffold, who played well for the Rams last year. Austin Blythe steps in at the right guard spot. First year starting for them. Jamon Brown suspended, so he has to, you know, step in, and he keeps the job all year, and they are great, and they are killing it on zone concepts, and, and you know, again, I think if you asked offensive linemen, what would you rather run, they'd be like outside zone literally all the time, and, and probably not outside, probably inside zone, but, you know, like the Rams did one thing, and they did it stupid well, and it was highly effective for them, and McVay did a really good job never running into loaded boxes, so Gurley regularly saw soft boxes. And then they incorporated motion from their slot receivers and enough constraint plays off of that motion in screens and in little jet sweeps, so on and so forth, such that teams had to respect the motion. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the running game is highly effective. The offensive line is doing great. Did generally, like you said, a good job protecting golf. Okay. Roger Saffold is gone. Went to Tennessee, mm-hmm. free agency. John mm-hmm. Sullivan retired. Uh, yep. So now it's Brian Allen, fourth round pick from last, from 2018 out of Michigan State, stepping into center. And then Joseph Noteboom, a uh, third round tackle out of TCU, who's now probably going to be starting at left guard. Now they've got to figure that out. You know, they have like, you know, a couple other guys who could potentially step into those spots, but they're very likely to be starting two second year players uh, on this offensive line. 
Andrew Whitworth, who's going to turn 38 in December, will yeah. is in a contract year. And then uh, Austin Blythe, the right guard, is also in a contract year. Mm-hmm. Retaining Whitworth, not easy. You know, it's tough to land on a contract figure for a tackle who's good, but also very old. Um, so maybe they pull that off. Shout out Jason Peters. Blythe, who may be a guy that they want to return if he has a second year of good starting play. Maybe they resign him. Maybe they don't. Uh, it's worth noting that, you know, Jared Goff is worth $9 million this year. He's worth $22 million in 2020 when his fifth year option kicks in. So yeah. they're going to have less contract room in just in general. And they have a ton of expiring contracts because the Rams are just built on this, like, you know, cycle and these old free agent guys. Yeah, and, like, it's really... And this is, like, when we predict Rams regression, the main thing we're predicting is, like, hey, what if all of these old free agents just don't play well? Like, <laughs> you know. Um, but accordingly, like, so there's going to be youth on this line, and then there's the potential for even more youth to come in next year, which obviously, okay, we want to focus on 2019. Brian Allen, Joseph Nope, middle-round picks, line, if you develop them well. And, the, you know, the Rams got a lot of credit for how they developed their offensive line last year. I cannot recall the name of the coach. I looked it up. I can't recall what his name is, but their offensive line coach got a lot of credit. That's great. We're going to see. But they had significant change at two starter spots. They have a super old left tackle. And they have a, a, a right guard whose who's, Blythe is going into his second year starting. Um, and he wasn't even supposed to be the starter last year, so he kind of like, won the job. We'll see if that's something that he's able to hold on to long term. So there's uncertainty here on a line that was good, was really highly effective in, in a really nice running system as a pass blocking line was solid, uh, and now there's been change. So like, this offensive line is not locked in by any means. Let's crack some more eggs of knowledge, but let's go study side up on this about what McVay does to help the offensive line despite some of these concerns. So one of the things I did was I charted every drop back of Goffs against the Eagles from week 15, which I did only because that was the most attempts for him all year. So I gave it, you know, the biggest single game sample size that I could have. What I noticed that was out of the five or six quarterbacks that I charted for this experiment, nobody moved the pocket and changed launch points more than McVay did for Goff. And that's exactly what I was charting. I was charting launch points just like Jim Schwartz does when he constructs his rush plan. Where in relation to the spot where the ball is snapped, does Goff throw the ball? And how many hitches or movements does it take to get to that point? Notably for these moved pockets, you can see on the visual, and I have this up on my on my timeline, where Goff throws within what hitch. And that's really all over the place. And right around the time I did this, there was a great discussion between the fellows at Pro Football Focus and Chris Long on Twitter. So Chris Long saw Dan Orlovsky say that the Rams had the best offensive line in football last year. Long kicked back on that, followed by PFF chiming in, saying that, yeah, they did grade well, really well in run blocking, and they were heavily aided in that area in a number of ways. Props to McVay for that. And in pass blocking, if you remove play action passes and moving pockets, so we're just talking straight drops, the Rams line graded in the middle of the pack in both grade and pressure surrendered. So it was a very good offensive line, absolutely, aided by scheme, absolutely, just like Goff in a way. But there's also the matter of turnover that we just mentioned that you could see some more severe regression than, than you know, that's expected. But I do expect McVay to still add protection, move the pocket, and protect Goff for the most part. And doggone it, he has to for all the reasons that we laid out. Define move the pocket. So when I'm looking at his launch points, the launch points move anywhere from within the, the tackle box, right? He can yeah. move a couple steps. Like a quick play action type deal, 
like seven yards to his right. Now he's over the guard. Next thing you know, he's over the left guard. Next thing you know, he's had a five, he's had a quick drop. He's had a five step drop. Then he's rolling out. Like there's so many right. different launch points for him. That's moving the pocket for me yeah. one way or another. I would right. I would argue that that uh, McVeigh and the way that they run the offense expands or widens the pocket. When I think yeah. about moving the pocket, I think about literally moving the launch point just to a different spot entirely. That's fair. Which like, yeah, yeah. like I'm parsing vernacular here, but it's a, I think it's yeah. an, an important visual for the listener. Mm-hmm. widening the pocket in the sense that, listen, when I fake wide zone and I fake split zone action and I have a a, a fly motion and jet motion guy coming yep. the opposite direction, so their their edge on the weak side has to jump out to, to cover the, the fly sweep guy and then the rest of the, the, the box, the rest of the defensive box is flowing in the strong direction because that's the way the wide zone flow is going and then all of a sudden it's just a drop back pass. <laughs> the edge rushers are just so far out. They're so far toward the sideline. They are spread out that the pocket is wider such that if a pressure occurs, there's so much more space to adjust within the pocket, which Goff is not an escape guy. He doesn't have escape uh, explosiveness and escape quickness. I think that's something you saw against the Bears, which the Bears did really, really well, is that the, the Bears, I believe, had four sacks on Goff, if memory serves. Generally, they, they pressured the living wazoo out of him. <laughs> yeah, they did. Refused to be widened. When, when when horizontal stretches came via that pre-snap jet motion, via that wide zone play action, they said, screw it. If you're going to beat us, beat us with this, right? It goes back to what I said about the Lions. If you're going to beat us, beat us with this. Yeah. But we're not going to let you take Khalil Mack, Leonard Floyd, Akeem Hicks, Eddie Goldman, and pull them to the sidelines when that's not where I want them to go. I want them to go at golf. So that's yeah. where they're going to go. Yep. And if you get the ball, you know, to the sideline, that's great. The ball's three yards behind the line of scrimmage, and I have good tackling safeties. Let's play. Yeah. Here we go, ball game, you know. But exactly. we're, 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 we're not going to have you take my best player in Khalil Mack and put him somewhere he's not going to fucking play. No, he's going he's, right, for, right for 16. All right, he's, he's, not, got, he's not chasing Josh gotta, Reynolds. Yeah. yeah, exactly. 16's got to go deal with it. All right, that's how this is going to go. That, that dictating, choosing how you're going to win and how you're going to lose. So I thought the Bears really were the best example of this in terms of refusing to be widened, and that collapses the pocket. And then one guy gets pressure, right? Akeem Hicks gets pressure. Well, Goff doesn't have good escapability. He doesn't have good athleticism to get out of there. And we've always known that. And again, that's fine. Like that's like these are these are very successful quarterbacks who have the same degree of escapability as Goff. But Goff, used to a much wider pocket, suddenly had much less space to adjust, and that one pressure had so much more of an impact, right? And so that's why, like, I think when we talk about Goff and in terms of pocket management, which I do not think is a great ability of his. Well, wide in the pocket, all of a sudden a, a decent pocket manager becomes a great pocket manager. He's got a lot more space to work with, collapse that pocket, i.e. the Chicago Bears, and you really expose that weakness for him. Yeah, and I like that distinction between changing the launch point versus rolling the pocket where the launch point changes as well. So that's a good point, Ben. Let's talk about some skill players. Man, Robert Woods is super, super underrated to me. And, and what Drop I don't... Drop the take. Drop the take. Every year I go through some pro scouting evaluations, sharpen sharpen the tools and whatnot, and and kind of refresh myself and, and check my draft grades versus what a player is a couple years down the line, so on and so forth. One of those players was Juju Smith-Schuster. One of those players was Robert Woods. Robert Woods is a better player than Juju Smith-Schuster right now. I know there's a lot of projection involved with the age, which everybody loves, of Juju Smith-Schuster, but Robert Woods does everything Juju does, and he does it better. That's why I don't understand the Cooper Cup argument because Robert Woods working over the middle of the middle of the field is freaking excellent. Great hands. Fantastic hands. 
Great zone awareness. Snappy little route runner. He's Yeah, exactly. He's very clean, very efficient. Awesome wide receiver. So again, I don't get the cup argument. I wanted to put it out there. Robert Woods, super underrated guy. You're also dealing with Brandon Cooks, which kind of it has to keep you honest as a defense. So there are some pieces there for Goff. And getting cut back is going to be great for this offense. Uh, I still don't know how they didn't figure it out without him, but maybe they should have signed Cole Beasley as a backup. I don't. I don't know, man. I don't know if it's if it's that serious. Uh, ben, you also have the running backs to deal with. Todd Gurley and his arthritic knee. And if we're talking fantasy, man, like Boy. Darrell Henderson from Memphis, the guy that we hyped up a bunch in the pre-draft process because the Eagles were looking at running backs, uh, I think he mm-hmm. could be a league winner for your fantasy team because he does everything that Gurley does as far as what they want to do schematically. Like when Gurley was out, CJ Anderson had to come in. Like I talked about, that eliminated a lot of the wide zone stuff. It eliminated the screen game off of it. Darrell Henderson is a direct response to that. If Gurley is not going to be full go, if Gurley is not going to be a workhorse and McVay can't adapt the offense around that and and still be effective, which CJ Anderson was effective, but let's look at the whole of the offense. I think Darrell Henderson is that guy and could have a big season as a rookie, depending on the health of Gurley and have a big future with the Rams as well before they decide not to sign him to a second contract like they did with Gurley and just draft somebody else. You remember when uh, like we were previewing the Super Bowl? And we were just like, there's no way Gurley's healthy, right? Right. Because like, they're like, listen, like he's healthy. He's just like not practicing. He hasn't played for the past few weeks. All we the like, analytical nerds were like, Gurley is healthy. He had a great game against the Cowboys. Like, no, Gurley was never healthy towards the end of that season yeah. at all, man. Painkillers is a... Right, exactly. That end of season <laughs> medical push, baby. I mean, it's it's something. And you hate to see it. And like, Gurley's fantastic talent. And, and, and I really worry that when, you know, like, this is, this is a... A total off the hip take, but when the Rams cut him in 2021, you know, like, <laughs> like, like people are gonna look back on his contract so poorly. Yeah, you know, and obviously running back value being the the flashpoint that it is, forgetting just how tremendously talented he was because you can't watch him and, and not be struck by by the talent in the situations in which you know requires it. He, much like Goff does, get the benefit of like a really nice uh, scheme in a situation that helps him out a lot, but. When it, when his talent is required, it's tremendous. Yeah, I have zero concerns over this running back room and this running back production and the the, the running game for the yeah. Rams because I mean, Gurley Henderson, Malcolm Brown, is John Kelly still there? The thing is, like, like we people forget it's not like the Panthers cut C.J. Anderson and the Rams grabbed him and made him effective. No, the Panthers cut C.J. Anderson. The Raiders signed him. They cut him after four days, and then he didn't do anything for a month. And then the Rams were having bad health with with Gurley and with somebody else, Zach Brown or Malcolm Brown, whoever it was. Malcolm Brown, yeah. Malcolm Brown, and they they pulled Anderson, who like nobody had wanted for a month, and made him an effective runner. You know, there is a glut of running back talent, and the Rams are going to bring him in. And what's curious is that there was some adjustment. When Anderson went in versus when Gurley went in. That's they ran what I'm a saying. lot more out yep. of 12 personnel, mm-hmm. and they ran a lot more power concepts and a lot less zone concepts. The thing is, is that that disrupted the continuity of the offense as a whole, and so it wasn't something that was, wow, Mike's Mike's very impressed. Yes. Mike's so far very happy, very proud. Uh, it disrupted <laughs> the continuity of, of, of uh, the offense as a whole because the offense was predicated on that zone flow. And so now you bring yep. in Henderson, and now you have your hedge bet for Gurley's health but you know that you'll be able to keep the scheme consistent. So that's what yeah. Henderson represents to me. Fantasy-wise, I have no idea. 
I have no idea how healthy Gurley is and how many touches he'll get and if Henderson will warrant that many touches. I think it's a great scheme fit for Henderson. I think every touch he gets will be highly effective for the Rams. But if Gurley's healthy, he's a better player. So I don't know how fantasy works. But the Rams' run, running offense, I don't think will be a problem unless No Boom and Brian Allen are both absolutely awful. Right. I, I would agree with that. Let, let's end this on a, on a prediction. What would you say is a fair over under for, let's go, points per game for the 12, offense? 19, 3. <laughs> I was just guessing numbers. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we're going to predict the record after part two, but I want to do something for the offense. What do you think? Top top eight? Is that a fair over-under? Top five with how they produce in the past? What do, you, what do you think is a fair number there? In terms of where they rank in what? Points per game? Points per game over the life of the season. I mean, like, yeah, I would set it at five. I mean, this so is still five. an objectively just very dangerous offense. Yeah. I mean, it's them, Chiefs. Saints. Eagles. Browns. Maybe Chargers. That's a tough group. I mean, you could land outside of that top five, not be a bad offense. That's not that's not what I'm saying here, but I think five is a good line. Right. So those those like the, the names that we just ripped off our heads, probably missing one or two, are the ones where I would say are the most likely to be in the top six, top seven. And then you expect the Rams to be in the top five. And you know, it's worth noting, you know, a little oh, preamble, make sure you listen to the next podcast. <laughs> uh with the defense they're toting out. They're gonna have they're gonna to. need they're gonna need some points, brother. <laughs> they need some points, man. For real. Yep. You, you can't just have one player on your defense, and it's Aaron Donald. He's special, but, you know, you're going to need a little bit more than that. Teams might start double-teaming Aaron Donald this year. Breaking. Really? Andy, did you see that tweet? Oh, my God. Saying that Wade Phillips didn't do enough to free up Aaron Donald. Like, he's he's Aaron Donald! Teams are going to double him. Aaron Donald. <laughs> no matter what you do, they're looking for him. You can see the impact on film. When he gets singled up, he's a, he's a wrecking ball, though. Ben, that's going to do it for this Eye on the Enemy Rams offensive series. I've also uh, I've already kind of mentioned what we got coming up next on BGN Radio. But, of course, training camp has opened. Look forward to some at-the-podium press conferences. I'll be talking training camp with BLG, who's got boots on the ground, covering it live for us here at BGN. Ben, would you say goodbye? Oh, yeah, also talking with Brian Westbrook. Ben, would you pick up that name I just dropped and say goodbye to the gentle listeners? I'm furious right now. <laughs> you, of all the things in this very information-riddled podcast to bring back, what you really wanted to refer back to in the close was the fact that you're going to maybe chat with Brian Westbrook. Don't be peanut butter and jelly. It's fine, Ben. What's peanut butter and jelly? Oh, is that jealous? Yeah, there you go. Peanut butter and jealous. That's cute. Um, <laughs> yeah, so thanks for listening to this show. This was this was the first half of an Eagles podcast's off-season look at the Rams' future because we really are both quite sick in terms of how we spend our time. But Mike literally hit me up at the end of last week. So, like, three, four days ago, I was like, yo, it's going to have to be a two-parter. So, like, we knew for a while that we weren't going to be able to fit in one. But we yeah. hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you follow us on Twitter, then you know. But if you don't, then you don't. We did successfully hit 1,000 five-star reviews. Boom. past week and and I, I i cannot express enough what that means to me and what that means uh to mike and to blg this podcast feed has existed for for less than a year uh, as we approach training camp again now in 2019 we think a little bit more as to where we were at this time last year and dealing with a lot of difficulties in terms of setting up the podcast and the feeds and the fact that that after a, a full season cycle now uh you know a thousand of you have felt strongly enough that you wanted to give us really the, the, the most impactful compliment that you can in terms of just the general podcasting world. It, it, it means a tremendous deal. And like I said, I, if I had the words to describe it, I would. I'm afraid that I don't. So we're very thankful. Uh, and, and you're all very gracious with, with your time and with your love. We appreciate it a great deal. 
If you did enjoy the podcast, please feel free. There are numbers bigger than 1,000, I'm told, and so we can hit them as we go along. Leave a rating, leave a review. Uh, I'm Benjamin Solak on Twitter, at Benjamin Solak, that's S-O-L-A-K. He's Michael Kist on Twitter, at Michael Kist NFL, that's K-I-S-T. Rams part two coming at you later this week. Thank you so much for listening. We all we got. We all we need. Fly, Eagles, fly. Team.